tshuva for the nations. Let's look at some other examples. Um, I've spoken about Cain before, and um, he's another example of a repentant before the Torah was given. And um, we see uh, in the story of Cain an example of uh, an inadvertent sin and the need for repentance even in inadvertent sins. We also see in the story of Cain that it's often ideological issues and moral values that bring people to do things that bring people very, very low. And i explain what I mean by those two things. <clears throat> I'll just uh, uh, briefly deal with it, issue by issue. Um, our sages tell us that Cain... Uh, well, he didn't know that he could actually kill Abel. He didn't know that. Don't forget, they were the first human beings, and uh, Adam did not had didn't die, and he didn't know, you know, how you can actually give a mortal wound to someone else. He didn't know. So um, there's actually a midrash that says that, and he struck Abel in many places to try to see how he could. Kill him, that does seem to be a little bit contradictory to the idea of it being an inverted, but it's either either that, you know, not going with that medrash, we could say that it was inadvertent, as I said, because he didn't know really that he was killing him, he was just striking him. Or you can argue that although he may on some level have had an intent to kill him, but yet blow by blow, he didn't really know how to do it. So there was still a lack of degree of intent because... He was uh, feeling around in the dark. That's a little bit of a weaker argument, but in any event, with Cain, we see that he evidently was really lacking in this very basic, you know, concern for the other. You know, Cain's reaction when, when uh, God comes to him and he asks him, where's your brother? What's his answer? His answer is, Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's guardian? In other words, there's an assumption that, well, my brother is none of my business, basically. Why don't you go ring next door? I mind my own business here. <laughs> you know, basically he has an attitude of, of my, I mind my own business. Um, it's interesting that uh, famously in Ethics of the Fathers, um, it states that if a, a person says, what's mine is mine, what's mine is yours, that person is a chassid. That person is a very righteous person. If someone says, what's mine is mine, what yours is yours, there's one view that that person is, that's the average person. There's another view that says, that is a character, straight, a character trait of Saddam, of Sodom. So in other words, there's, there's an approach that sees... The attitude of, we're not connected, that I just mind my own business and you're not my problem, as something being deeply, deeply wrong, um, that we are responsible for each other. Um, so that clearly was, um, was Cain's problem, is that he really came to a place where he had totally abandoned God's vision, because as we said before, and as the Torah itself states, 
um, Adam was placed in the garden to work it and to guard it. So not only his fellow family members of mankind, but even all of creation. And Cain evidently had lost that completely and only was interested in himself. He didn't feel any responsibility even for his own brother. Who else was out there? Who else was there? There was, there was the, the creation, the animals, and there was his parents, and there was his brother. There's too much for him to handle, evidently. Just, just that was too many people. The, the city was just too big. He couldn't say hello to everybody. Yeah? Too many people to get involved with. I mean, unbelievable. So clearly, yeah, well, you can argue he had family issues, but the bottom line is those are things he needed to tackle. Those are things he needed to deal with. Those are things he needed to he needed to speak to his brother about and 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 come to peace with him. And he didn't do that. Um, so you know, Cain also doesn't do a full truth. And as we go through the sequence in Genesis, we see, you know, a descent, a further descent away from the pristine state uh, in the Garden of Eden as things get farther away until we get to a point in, in the generation of the flood where God has to destroy the world, wash it away and start anew. But again, we see the concept of repentance clearly in the Torah, again, uh, in regards to the, the generation of the flood. Because God um, instructs Noah to build the flood, excuse me, to build the, the ark over many, many years. And that creates a situation by which people are coming to ask him, what are you doing? And he responds, and they know about it, and that gives an opportunity to change, realizing what's coming, for them to change their ways. But instead they mock him and they fail to do that. The flood is also um, a wonderful example for us uh, well, actually a tragic and also horrible example, but of, of a um, symbolic type of tshuva, at least form of purification. In, in Hasidic writings, they discuss how the mabul, how the flood was a form of kind of like a mikveh, which washed the world clean and started anew. But certainly uh, every human being in their lifetime may have a point where they face a generation of the flood within themselves. God forbid, but generational flood is basically a paradigm in which a person is avalanching out of control towards a point of destruction, towards a point where things, things um, where civilization is really going to fall apart. But what we mean by that is that the person himself is, is really his... Um, his being as a civilized person, or he, he's out of control. He's, he's truly out of control and, and spiraling more out of control. And um, there's a Noah there that is warning him. There's, there's a voice. There's also exterior events that are occurring to help shake him up in order to get out of it. However, if a person gets to a certain point, and still doesn't get the message, then we need a flood. Now, what's a flood? A flood is an event, and it could, could also be, in a certain sense, a type of repentance that washes everything away. 
usually through repentance, a person doesn't reach that level. What do I mean by that? In other words, what the flood is, is an absolute, complete destruction of identity. Everything's washed away. Because things have become so corrupted, everything in a very powerful, forceful, and aggressive way is undermined. Everything's taken away and has to be rebuilt. Truth is, that's a very, very dangerous approach. In a certain way, it, it has a similarity politically to, you know, revolution. And that usually doesn't work out very well. Um, so, so it's a very, very um, dangerous approach. But, but there are circumstances where that becomes a necessity. And this is another reason you could say why every year there's a Russia and there's a time for repentance so that we don't get to that point every year there's a time set to examine so that we have a yearly renewal uh, so there isn't a build up of corruption in the person to the point where without a horrendous um, catastrophe or some or, or a, a powerful powerful shock which really you know, undermines their whole identity um, they can't change. Person shouldn't have to come to that point that they'll need to have that type of aggression, that they'll fall into that type of situation where they'll be fully have to be recreated. <clears throat> However, <clears throat> in a certain sense, I think that particularly the Noahide community, um, I think they face a paradigm slightly like the flood. And the reason I say that is because anyone who's, who's, who's part of this community and coming from you know, a different background, a different history in which um, a relationship to Judaism really didn't exist, um, understanding of Jewish um, fundamental concepts didn't exist. And in a certain sense, that wasn't really, you know, uh, certainly on, on many, many, many levels of person. That wasn't who they were. So they really, it's an aggressive, you know, um, conflict. It's, it's really a, a very powerful act of change. Very, very powerful act of change. Um, which, which in that way resembles the, the world after the flood. In which there's, there's this flood of change or ripping away of a person placing really the Noah of himself. Meaning, what I mean by that is that the majority of the self is... You know, this power, these powerful shouts and voices which are the generation symbolizing, the, symbolizing those voices of the person, that person's identity. And then there's a small voice that has some connection to, you know, to, um, Jew, uh, to, to Judaism. And we leave just that. And everything else is washed away to a certain extent. And... Um, the truth is, the more the person does that, it's a very, very high level. It's a very, very, very high level. It's, uh, it's really, in a certain sense, you know, isn't that, in a certain sense, like, uh, you know, in a certain sense, it's, 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 a, it's a kind of um, a glimmer, it's a color of, of, of the Garden of Eden. It's a kind of a, a type of a, a metamorphosis, you know, a very powerful one. So, um, the word uh, tshuva means to return, 
And certainly it is a return, but it's a very powerful return. It's a, it's a return to a place that was buried very, very deep, you know? And um, that causes a spark in the world that um, obviously it'll have, it has its ripple effects. And um, it's a messianic type of, it's type of, of, of act, really. I mean, that's clear. It's clear. Um, as we see that, that at the end of days, you know, all the nations will understand this. That means we're connecting to that now. You're connecting to a messianic energy. It's a very, very powerful thing. Um, okay. But I think again and again, the, the story in Genesis continues again and again to show us that that everything that's gone wrong is man's fault. It's not so comfortable. I know it's not a pleasant pill, but as things continuously to get worse, it's because of man's actions. It's not because of God. Um, the generation of the flood was were very strong, and um, they lived in a world full of abundance. And we see that Scripture tells us that they their daughters married angels powerful beings so you can imagine what kind of how powerful and vigorous these people were but often from that place is where people can come very low and it's interesting that in the last uh, few weeks in the last few uh, parashiot in the in the torah reading we see this again and again that moses warns the people the children of israel that they're going to go into the land they're going to have an abundance they're going to be satiated, and they're going to have a tremendous amount of natural resources, and they're going to forget God, and they're going to abandon the commandments. And then things are going to be go downhill from there. So, you know, God warned the Jewish people that this was going to happen. Uh, I think it's very interesting that, you know, people are always asking about tragedies. You know, why is this happen? And... Um, you know, um, people maybe uh, over the, it's interesting actually also in, in part of Gentile society would ask the question about the Jews, the question, you know, why the Jews suffer so much. And I think it's very interesting that, um, I think in, in Parashat Nitzavim, it says right there, it says that, you know, there's going to be a group of you that are going to abandon God, and eventually you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be rooted out of the land. And then it says, the land is going to be desolate and destroyed. And then it says, and the nations will come. And they'll say, what happened here? What in the world went on? And they're going to say, this is because there was a nation here that, that didn't listen, that, that God told them to keep the commandments, and they failed to listen. Sadly, if we look through history, um, to a great extent, the nations did not understand things in that way. Um, some nations understood Israel's suffering as an affirmation that Judaism was wrong. And it's fine, it seems interesting because it's all foretold. So it was already said that this was going to happen. The Torah already said that the, the lesson that the nations need to learn from this is what not to do, what not to do. Um, 
the relationship, the providential relationship that God has with Israel is very, very close. And um, often the sins is often swift. It's a very intimate relationship. Again, if, if the king may treat his own son, his prince or ministers that are in his own entourage, and they misbehave, that has a very bad, you know, it, it, uh, it uh, relates very badly to the king as opposed to someone who's farther away. <clears throat> but the point is, is that the nations were meant to take a lesson that they should have learned that, wait a minute, why were they punished? For idolatry? Why were they punished? Because of being unethical? But we did that so much more. And we've gotten away with it. Oh my, but what if God one day punishes us? What's going to be then? That's what they were supposed to be thinking. It was supposed to be a lesson. Israel is a certain paradigm, an example in certain ways, an ambassador, but a living example of, uh, you know, kind of like the teacher's, you know, favorite student. But if that favorite student gets punished, that doesn't look good for everybody else. That's, uh, that is not a good sign. So that's a lesson that, that the nations needed to take. And um, again and again, in, in the book of Genesis, you see that uh, the nations fail to get the message. Now, we're coming to the end. <laughs> uh, there was another point I really wanted to talk about, and I'm running out of time, so. I wanted to talk about really the paradigm of repentance for the nations with this, this, the story of Jonah, of Jonah, in which we see a, a success story of repentance for the non-Jews. And I wanted to examine that story. Um, we see that Jonah enters the city. It's, the city is huge. It's gigantic. What is it? It's bigger than Manhattan. I mean, it, it took three days to walk through the whole city. It was humongous. Anyway, he walks one. He walks in uh, for, uh, into as much of the city as he could in one day's journey, and then he announces that the uh, city is going to be turned over, whether conquered or destroyed. And um, people are very disturbed. They become frightened. And they speak to the king, and the king issues an edict that everyone has to fast, put on sackcloth, cry out, and who knows, maybe we'll be saved. And he also, and maybe he says people will, through this act, they will change their behavior and act differently, and they'll cease to act in unjust ways. So we see a lot of interesting things here from this story. First of all, um, the prophecy doesn't tell them to repent. It doesn't tell them to change. They're just warned that um, Ninveh is going to turn upside down. That Ninveh is going to be, uh, there's going to be a terrible tragedy there. We also see that they listen, and we really don't know why. We don't know why they listen to the prophet. They're not you know, it's not their religion. You know, was, a rabbi goes into a church and says, hey, everybody should do this and that. I mean, and they probably won't listen. I don't know. Um, so it seems interesting that they listened. I think the assumption you have to make is that um, 
there were already events going on in Israel, in Israel's history, that had proven that the pro prophets are serious, that what they say means serious business. You know, whether at this point in, this, in, in Israel's history, the 10 tribes were, or had already gone into exile, which is very possible, um, because uh, Yonah, I believe, was from Judah, and so the exile of Judah hadn't occurred yet, but I believe that the exile of the ten tribes had occurred, which would mean that the prophecies regarding the ten tribes had already come true. This would be the case. I have to be honest. I, had, I did not have a chance to fully research it. I didn't see any of the commentaries discuss it, but it's very possible that that's the reason, that they knew of the prophets and they knew that what they said had come true, and they were, and they were very scared. So the people of Ninway were afraid of punishment. Um, this wasn't some aha moment. This wasn't like some Balchuva moment where they just, wow, I want to be Jewish or something like that. They were afraid. They were really scared. Um, and um, so we find that they did a couple of things. And it's interesting because it, it it's very much resembles Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, doesn't it? What do we say in the Sanatoka, if we say in the, um, the classic prayer for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we say, Tshuva, Tzfilat, Tzdaka, Avirin, Azra, that repentance, prayer, and charity, they undo evil decrees. So it would make sense that since what Ninveh is trying to do is undo an evil decree, it's not they're not necessarily really trying to repent. What they're trying to do is undo a heavenly decree against them. And so they put on sackcloth. They so they're so that's so they're it's a form of tshuva. In fact, under the word tshuva in the sudor, it actually says fasting. So that's one thing. And um, tefillah, prayer, they cried out, so they fulfilled that. So they were fasting and in mourning, and they were praying, trying to annul this decree. And finally, charity, they also returned, it says, they returned this that didn't belong to them to their neighbor. And what happened? God did annul the, the decree nullified the decree, and they were not destroyed. Now, it's interesting that the Malbim says, um, he seems to allude to a question that um, I don't understand. I mean, they were still idolaters. So, I mean, there's this big elephant in the room here. So he explains it this way. He says that um, based on natural circumstances, uh, they shouldn't have been destroyed. They were a big, powerful city, powerful economy. But there was a specific heavenly decree against them because of the weight of their sins that was that came down against them to destroy them. <clears throat> now, as we know from the story of the flood, the final stamp on a decree comes from theft and from corrupt behavior between people in, in human relationships. So even though they had idolatry, but they did correct their ways in terms of how to treat other people, and that nullified the decree, and things returned to their natural state. And in the natural state, they weren't heading towards any kind of a disaster. So, in other words, basically what he's saying is there's good news and bad news. The, the good news is they weren't heading towards disaster. The bad news is, is that um, being that they were um, not Israel, 
God interacted with them in a way which was based on nature, not in, a very, in the most intimate way of providence. And therefore, they got a break. The break was that they're not punished. Things will just follow naturally. Of course, the downside is that there's nothing to shake them up out of their, their slumber, out of the way that they're behaving. It's to kind of wake them up and redirect them. The problem is when a person is not affected by the negatives of providence, there's nothing sometimes to alarm us and get us back on track. And so you could see that that was the... Um, that was what happened with Ninveh. So they did change their ways in terms of how they dealt with other people, but they didn't change their ways in terms of idolatry. So we can learn an incredible lesson of how important it is to be careful on how we treat others. And now before Yom Kippur, to if there's anyone that we do have a dispute with, anyone we humiliated, and particularly anyone that maybe is a question of us uh, having money that doesn't belong to us, that we should take care of those matters before Yom Kippur. It's very, very important. There's actually a, um, the rabbis in here, some of the communities in Brooklyn and elsewhere, they published a, um, a publicized uh, a statement or a psak uh, din in which they say that everyone should make sure that they should uh, make a public declaration uh, excusing anyone who may have stolen from them uh, during the year, at any type of small amount, you know, any type of, you know, whether they took, somebody took the wrong coat, somebody borrowed their pen, somebody borrowed a small amount of money, that isn't that serious, because people don't take these things very seriously, and because of that, really somebody could, could fall into a serious sin, which would, God forbid, weigh against the nation. So, because of that, they, they recommended everyone to, to forgive others for these um you know, these different types of monetary infractions, which aren't things that we're going to dispute in a court or anything like that, but the things that are very, very common. So those are some things for all of us to think about uh, in terms of uh, the seriousness of keeping our possessions clean. In fact, we do see this, and I want to, this last, last point, last point, and that is that um, we see that Ninveh were particularly sensitive to their possessions, and they even had their own flocks, um, their own flocks also were fasting and wearing sackcloth. I found that strange. But then I thought about it and I said, this shows that they had an awareness there was something wrong with the way they were behaving with their possessions. That even their possessions should suffer a little bit. Maybe they, they felt that maybe their, their, their flocks were eating from you know, fields that didn't belong to them or it caused some kind of damage. That was a common situation in ancient times. And, um, you know, in, in rural and pastoral um, communities. And evidently they wanted the animals to fast and purify themselves from possibly in some way damaging the property of others. So there's a great profound lesson we can learn from the uh, city of Ninde. Everyone have a uh, um, very wonderful holiday and it should be a sweet year. And should we all come to full repentance? Any questions? Okay, okay. Uh, one, 